anticipation of the festivities these past few days, about 10 days ago, 11 days ago, I decided that I would do my sermon ahead of time so that I could get uh, on with everything else that was happening around here in Washington. So I chose the reading from Matthew's Gospel, the call of the disciples, the first call in the Gospel of Matthew. And so I had a very nice, I think, a very nice sermon about the call stories and about how we're all called to be God's servants and how we're all called to follow the Christ and the things that we need to give us. I think it was a very nice sermon. <laughs> and then about last Wednesday, Thursday, I realized that that dog wasn't going to hunt today. So I scratched it all together and decided that perhaps God was leading me to speak about the reading from the epistle today to the Corinthians. There are three things that we can uh, talk about today. The first one is this, what was going on back then? What does it say to us? And where do we go from here? Back in those days, you know, they had seen the light. Scripture is very clear about that. The early church had experienced the light of Christ, the light that shines through the darkness. That's the good news of the lesson. Just like you and I have heard about the light that shines through the darkness, just as we are all drawn to that particular light, so they were drawn to that particular light. And that's the good news, that the light has shined in the darkness. And then there's bad news. Within a generation, the church was having some problems amongst its own people. Some people were saying that they followed Cephas, Paul, Peter, the founder, the rock on which Christ, uh, Jesus founded the church, so we say. The other one was Apollos, a Greek a Jewish convert who was very eloquent. People were drawn to him. Some people said that they followed Paul. Freedmen, slaves tended to follow Paul. And then some who wanted to top everybody else said that they only followed Christ. It was one-upsmanship. If we follow Christ, we're better than everybody else. And so they fought with each other. Now, they weren't arguing in those days about how many angels can sit on the top of a pin and the head of a pin? These Christians were exploding like enemies, like cats in a sack. Not only were they divided in mind, love, the love of Christ that shines through the darkness, was threatened itself. One of the things that we can learn from that particular episode is this. Factionalism is a fact of life. Factionalism is a fact of life. And you and I both know that it can rip a nation apart, it can tear the fabric of, of communities, and it can tear congregations apart. The episodes of the last few days and what's happened uh, uh, clearly led me to this particular lesson. Uh, what does it say to us? We know what it said to the congregation, what Paul said to the congregation, the early Christian community. What does it say to us? Let me take you back to Easter three years ago. Uh, President Obama visited a congregation on Easter three years ago, and these are the words that I said. I said that the, the captains of the religious right were always calling us backwards, always looking back to something else, and that they were calling us back to the days when gays would remain in the closet, calling us back to the days when blacks would remain on the back of the bus, calling us back to the days when women were called to remain in the kitchen, and foreigners were to remain on their own side of the border. It got tweeted out, out of that particular, of that service, and Rush Limbaugh got a hold of it. Now, Rush Limbaugh is, I think, a very irresponsible charlatan, but that doesn't leave us neither here nor there. 
But anyway, he told his troops to go ahead and email us and get in touch with us on that right after that Easter day. And it was so bad that our whole system crashed here at St. John's Church. The Haiti mail that we received at St. John's Church was unbelievable. We were called shameful. We were called all sorts of things. And it went on and on and on and on. And so we survived that. Fast forward to last Friday. When word got out that we were having the service before the inauguration, uh, some uh, folks in the Episcopal Church immediately emailed me. These were the kinder, gentler voices at the beginning who said something to this effect. How can you let that man, who, who doesn't have any of the Christian values in which we believe, to be allowed to come to that church? So I gave them my answer, my usual answer. I said to them, you know, we have a shingle outside the Episcopal Church that says the Episcopal Church welcomes you, and then we don't have a long list of names before it of all the people that are excused from that invitation. And I also told them this. I said, you know, there are a lot of Christian values, and we can argue about all the different Christian values, but there's one that I remember very clearly, and this was that Jesus had dinner, broke all the rules, broke all the laws, when he had dinner with the tax collectors, the most hated individuals in all of society. And I told them, I said, I consider that a Christian version, to gather with the people with whom you disagree the most. Then the word got out that Robert Jeffress, the, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, was the speaker for that day. And it is said that he has had some comments about anti-gay comments, anti-Muslim comments, after anti-Mormon comments, and immediately, now these were a little harsher comments coming my way from members of the Episcopal Church about how would I allow somebody like that to speak from the pulpit of St. John's Church? How would I allow somebody to sully the, the pulpit of the Episcopal Church? And I thought to myself, sully the pulpit of the Episcopal Church? Since when did we become so pure in the Episcopal Church? And they went on and on and that, uh, going on about the things that we couldn't allow to happen, the things that we didn't want to happen. We just didn't think that it was possible that we would allow this to happen. And they reminded me that I have the right to refuse, as rector of a church, anybody the right to speak in this church. For all of us gathered here today, we've had this service before the inauguration of a president 12 times in, since 1933. Happily, those services included six Democratic presidents and six Republican presidents. And we have always, always given the president who is about to be inaugurated the privilege of choosing who the preacher is going to be for that particular service. And I want to tell you that I've never researched what they were going to say. I've never researched what, who, they were, who they were and all the things that go around, around them. I've never researched any of it. When Barack Obama was uh, inaugurated as president in 2009, the preacher was T.D. Jakes. Now I have to tell you that after I looked up T.D. Jakes, and he's a preacher of the prosperity gospel, I have to tell you, I don't agree with the prosperity gospel, not my perspective of the prosperity gospel. And yet he didn't, if President Obama wanted him to preach here, we were willing to grant him the opportunity to preach here as we wanted to give everybody who has been president and chooses to be here for that service the privilege of choosing who that president was going to be, who that person was going to be. The people of the Episcopal Church kept on coming and coming. Our, uh, our system didn't crash because I don't think there are enough Episcopalians in this world to make it to crash. 
But I have to tell you this, from my perspective, from the perspective of my Christian faith, in Christ's sight, there are no insiders and there are no outsiders. For we are all finally of one nature, of one flesh, one grief, and one hope. From my perspective on how I understand the gospel in Christ's sight, if we fail in love, we fail in all things. Because you and I both know that the opposite, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. And we know from the epistle of John that perfect love is the only thing that can cast out fear. When embroiled in any kind of theological disagreement, my motto is this, is always to make sure that the unity of the church is not contingent upon unanimity of opinion nor uniformity of action. It is God's claim on us that unifies us, not our claims on God. From my perspective, openness is the key that unlocks opportunity for broadening horizons so that when our vision is myopic, when the mind is closed like a steel door, and when hearing is precluded because our ears are filled with the sound of our own voices, it is difficult to accomplish the mission which God has entrusted to all of us. There are many people who said that perhaps we shouldn't be having these kinds of services in the Episcopal Church. That's a good argument to have, but it's not a good argument to have on the heat of the day. I think it's the argument that we can have at St. John's Church from now on to four years from now, and perhaps we should withdraw from that kind of uh, service. That's a good conversation to have. It is a good conversation, and I think it will be edifying for all of us. But until then, we live with the pattern with which we have lived. St. Paul is the one who said, all have sinned and fallen short. St. Augustine wrote it this way, never fight evil as if it were something that arose totally outside of yourself, because it arises inside of ourselves. And I have to tell you that when a day I die, and I hope I get to see God face to face, I hope that God is not an Episcopalian. I hope that God will be more gentle, kinder, more generous than my brothers and sisters in the Episcopal Church who have just hammered and hammered and hammered for days on end. Where do we go from here? I'll give you the end of my sermon on Christmas Eve here at St. John's Church. Listening to the rhetoric of the campaign and its aftermath, it feels at times like we have discovered secrets about one's family one didn't want to know, and in the privileged location of Northwest Washington, one could pretend we're not true about ourselves. I told that congregation, as I am telling you now, that I pray for the United States every day, and as long as I'm the rector of this church, we will continue to pray for the president of the United States. And I pray for the United States on a daily basis that the United States will find a gentler way of talking about human migration. For all of you who are visitors to our congregation, six members of our staff came as immigrants to this country. And in the 200-year history of St. John's Church, 14 rectors have served this church, and three of those 
are immigrants to this country. One from Ireland, one from England, and one from Cuba. And I pray for the United States that the United States will find a way to be more gen generous and gentler in its conversation with those who are immigrants to our country. But if it doesn't, St. John's must remain and will remain a place of hospitality and belonging to those whom society or our government wants to throw out. Every day I pray for the United States and every Sunday when we gather for worship, we will pray for the President of the United States and I will pray that the United States will continue to be a place of tolerance and diversity and respect. But if it doesn't, then it is incumbent on you and me, the people of St. John's Church, to find and seek a way to be a blessing to all the people of our country, regardless of race, sexual orientation, back, ethnic background, or cultural background. I will pray for the United States every day, and I pray we, every Sunday we will pray for the President of the United States, that we may be able to discover a way to vote in the future, not in fear or self-interest, but in hope and in the pursuit of the common good for all of us. But if it doesn't, I hope that St. John's will continue to be a faithful community that judges democracy by how safe it is to find oneself in the minority. I will pray for the United States every day and every Sunday we will pray for the President of the United States that our nation can be a home for the outcast and a safe place for the least and the lost. But if it doesn't, I pray that St. John's Church will continue to worship a Christ who is made known in the hungry and the stranger and the outcast. A church like St. John's Church, I think, is called to be a living example of what the reconciling and liberating and transforming love of God can be. I pray that we will continue to be a witness, a witness to that faith, and that a witness to the faith like that can begin to heal our country and inspire us to be a people of greater humility, of greater generosity, of greater gratitude, of greater grace, of greater pursuit of the truth, and greater in compassion. But if we don't accomplish that, if that doesn't happen, we followers of the Christ must do it anyway. When in distress, I always go back and read the sermons of Martin Luther King Jr. That's where I find my inspiration. And I went back to read the sermon by Martin Luther King Jr. preached in November of 1957 at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And it was on Jesus' command to love our enemies. One of the things that he said in that is that perhaps we should be using that text more frequently in our own society. And I couldn't agree with him more. And one of the things that he says in that particular sermon is this, you can't see straight when you hate. I remember the words of Martin Luther King Jr. And I offer them for your consideration as people of St. John's Church. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate. 
adding deeper darkness to a night devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only God's light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. From my perspective, that's our higher calling. Maybe this is a sermon about a call. A call to be one who is not driven by hate, who lets the light shine, has open ears and open hearts for all of us, remembering always, always that each and every one of us is a unit of God's grace, unprecedented, irrepeatable, and irreplaceable. And from the Christian perspective, created by the very same God, redeemed by the very same Christ, and sanctified by the very same Holy Spirit, regardless of whether we agree with them or not, whether we admire them or not. All of us, children of the one God. Amen. Amen.